The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Thursday, November 8th, 2018. From Slater to the Gist, I'm Mike Pesca. Still thinking about the Democrats' big win. Say it. The Democrats' big win. Don't let them tell you it wasn't. I went back to an old article by Larry Sabato in Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball, where it was was pretty seer-like when he said that the percentages since direct election of senators is that 91% of non-presidential party incumbents get reelected and 75% of presidential party incumbents get reelected. So we had 35 Senate races. It gets a little screwy because Mississippi had those two Senate races, including the uh, special, but the Democrats did lose. It looks like four, Indiana, North Dakota, Missouri, and Florida. Florida, that's a little that's a little high. It should be only about 10% of the losses, so you'd expect two losses if it were going by historical trends. The Republicans lost Nevada, that is on in line with Republican trends. But as I think about every state that the Democrats lost, I'm not trying to make excuses, but there are some good excuses. The way I think about it is a couple of the, North Dakota, I mean, you know, that's that's a state that Trump won by 40 points. It's very hard for Heidi Heitkamp to defend that. And uh, Florida, well, Florida's a loss. It's a bad loss. There's no excuse. But do you know that Bill Nelson has been the only statewide elected official since I think I think 2002? But look at Indiana and their Donnelly lost. I think of the seat as almost rented for six years because the Republicans shot themselves in the foot with a non-Luger, as it were, when they nominated Tea Party crazy man Richard Murdoch over Dick Luger. And because he was a terrible Republican candidate, there Donnelly slipped in for six years. And look at Missouri. Claire McCaskill in 2012. Remember who she ran against, Todd Akin? In 2012, she wrote an article, How I Helped Todd Akin Win So I Could Beat Him Later. She identified that he would be too radical. He was a big Tea Party founder also, and she was right. So, My point in saying this isn't, oh, here are all the reasons Democrats lost and Democrats uh, inherently have so much more appeal. No, the Senate is a body where 30 of the seats seem to be trending or more red than blue and 20 more blue than red. My point in saying this isn't that, oh, every time the Democrats lose, they have an excuse. The Democrats nationally uh, have a reason to win. My point is only to say it was a big Democratic win. And I want to underline that because I've been hearing so much discussion um, on podcasts I listen to by people who are so despondent, Democrats who are still so despondent. I heard Michelle Goldberg being despondent. I heard Vera Lynn Williams on the Waves today. The entire Waves podcast was so despondent. Guys, you won. And even though there were a few races that you lost, that is politics. And the way I think about politics is this. You want your candidate to win, but if the reason that your candidate loses is just because more people made the mistake of voting for the other guy, then there's nothing to get despondent over. I always feel that in the long run, you can change minds. The thing to really get despondent over is if there is something unfair, literally an election that is being handed to someone else, if there is election tampering, if there is voter suppression, 
suppression. Now, in Georgia, it has been more than alleged, it has been documented, there were attempts at voter suppression. Uh, governor now, or the man who will be governor, it, it seems like, Brian Kemp, controlled the election, and he pulled all the tricks, and many of the tricks are unconstitutional. But realize this. His exact match plan that was thrown out by the courts a week ago. And the effect could have been that everyone knew about it. The right people who were threatened by it were inspired to come out to the polls and even to vote early. And there was no suppression based on that. Now, a lot of people saw images or saw tweets about long lines at the polls and they say, see, this is another example of voter suppression. After all, the secretary of state, the guy's running for governor, controls the means of voting. And a lot of these people saying this in my circles were New Yorkers who were also in their tweets and in their conversations saying, look at the long lines at my poll. No one was trying to suppress you in New York. There may have been active attempts at voter suppression by making those lines really long and the polling places really inconvenient in Georgia. I would like to see a study. Kemp's not going to do it. Maybe an academic will. But also realize you were in a state where voting was such a hassle, where the lines were long, and no one didn't want you to vote. So maybe there is an explanation other than suppression. And maybe there's an explanation why Stacey Abrams lost. Again, if If the voters of a state don't align with a politician, they will vote against the politician. Now, we're all saying, look, the reason they don't align with Stacey Abrams is because she was black or is black, still is black. (laughs) She's going to stay black and die, as they say, is because she is black and Brian Kemp is white. And that might be true. But also there were her stances and you might not have even noticed her stances because They were your stances. Same thing happened with Beto O'Rourke. How'd he lose? He said all the things that I would love a guy to say. Well, maybe Texans wouldn't like the things he was saying. Here, I'm going to play a clip from Stacey Abrams on the Jake Tapper show on CNN, State of the Union. She's questioned about her vote uh, backing a gun ban in the state legislature. Let's talk about gun policy. When you were a state lawmaker in 2016, you co-sponsored a bill that would have allowed Georgia state authorities to take away so-called assault weapons from current gun owners. Most similar bans would grandfather in existing uh, weapons of that sort, semi-automatic rifles that are called uh, assault weapons. So is that your current position, that law-abiding gun owners in Georgia should have to give up those weapons if authorities deem it necessary? In the state of Georgia, you introduced legislation to start conversations. What? I thought it was a legislative body. It turns out it's a salon, a lyceum, if you will. Start a conversation. Here's a conversation. Hello, sir. That gun's illegal. I'm going to arrest you now. What do you have to say? By the way, don't say anything. You have the right to remain silent. Jake went in, just like me. That phrase stuck out to him. Your co-sponsor told reporters the law, quote, would require gun owners of these particular models to turn their guns in. And again, my my point is this. The legislation introduced was the beginning of a conversation. I am absolutely certain that were we to pass this in Georgia, we would have a conversation about grandfathering in, about whether or not people would turn their their guns in, whether there would be buybacks. Look, I 100% actually support Stacey Abrams' position in the gun matter. But that is my position. It might have not been the position of many Georgians. Know that there are reasons she may have lost other than suppression, other than racism. Sure, they're wrapped up with racism, but you can't be so, you could do, do whatever you want. I'm not going to tell you how to think, but there are reasons not to be so despondent. There are reasons to say what we need to do is change minds or what we need to do as a country is just get a little younger and less racist and uh, more open to the idea of regulating guns. And this will make us all a little bit more positive, less anxious, and more enthused 
to get out the right kind of vote the next time. So again, unless there's voter suppression or unless there's something inherently undemocratic about how the elections are going, let's just try to convince more people to vote for our people the next time. And this brings me to my spiel. It's when the winners, fair and square, of Senate elections make up a Senate that is not a fair and square representation of the people. But first, a political fixer turned business guru who has written a book called The Fixer, a guy I've known since we were both, oh, about 15, a good conversation with Bradley Tusk. Bradley Tusk has been many things, puppet, pauper, pirate, poet, pawn, king. But most importantly, his life breaks down, as I see it, into three distinct parts. There was the working for politicians on the policy side of things. Then there was the working for politicians to get them elected side of things. And now there's the working for corporations to navigate the politicians. It's all collected in the new book called The Fixer, My Adventures Saving Startups from Death by Politics. Bradley Tusk, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me on. So Many places to start, but let's start. You're working for Rod Blagojevich, doing essentially what the public thinks Rod Blagojevich does all day. You're essentially running the state of Illinois. But he chose not to, and somebody yeah. had to do Thank it. Thank God for that, right? So how, uh, how'd you get the job? Yeah. Why'd he like you? And how much say or leeway did you have over real policy? Yeah, so he won kind of out of nowhere. So Rod's one of these people where... He's like in the top 0.001% of talent when it comes to like retail political skills and political mm-hmm. instincts and in the bottom decile of all other human functioning, right? <laughs> so, but he wins this gubernatorial race out of nowhere, really big surprise. They hire someone to be the deputy governor and that person is like our age now, right? Kind of mid forties and after six weeks, like this is ridiculous and they leave, right? And so they need someone new. And, you know, I've thought about this a lot, and there's a benign reason for why I got this job and non-benign. And, and the reason- So I'm going to yeah. give him Blagojevich. I'm yeah. going to say non-benign. Well, I think it's both, right? Yeah. So the benign would be they knew he was crazy. Mm-hmm. They knew he was impossible to work for. And because I was 29 years old and the job was to run the entire state of Illinois, I was willing to put up with an endless amount of shit because it was like, hey, this is the greatest opportunity I'm ever going to have. I'm going to make the most of it and I'm going to deal with him. So they needed someone young enough that would put up for put up with it. And then I had like a lot of experiences. So I knew a little bit of a lot of things. I was a lawyer. I had done po- uh, press for Schumer. I had done politics for Bloomberg. I had done operational work at the Parks Department. So I, I kind of knew a little bit about right. a lot of stuff. So that's the benign. You have all this good experience in New York, a clearly better city than yep. Chicago. Go on. No question. Your I, words, I, not mine. I believe that strongly. Um <laughs> But then the less benign would be, so there were only three or four things that were not in my portfolio. So I oversaw the budget, operations, legislation, policy, and communications. That's pretty much the whole state. Legislation. Right. right. Yeah. So here's what I didn't oversee. Contracts. Yeah. Grants. Patronage. And in retrospect, if you wanted to commit pay-to-play politics and you wanted to rob the place blind, those are the places you would do it. Well, thank God. I mean, well, yeah, th- it's, I'd, I'd be, there's I'd no- be doing this interview from cell block C right now. Right. So, so- in a way, Donald Trump had a similar situation, which is that, no offense to you, but you would admit this, he couldn't get the best and the brightest to work oh, for him. Oh, yeah, sure. Well, well Blagojevich lucked into you, but you didn't have the most sterling resume of anyone who was a lieutenant governor in America. No, at that not time. at all. Okay. So my question is, when you look at things that are going on in the Trump administration and you see a person who's over his or 
or her head being tasked with something. Do you have any insights? Yeah, to how yeah I, I wrote this, a column about this yeah. actually, which is one is I, I remember I called it how to survive crazy at the top, right? Mm-hmm. And so one is you have to be willing to say no. And I'll tell you where it becomes important is the reason that everyone went to jail but me was there was an occasion where Rod slipped up. He asked me to commit extortion against Rahm Emanuel. I refused and I put a stop to it. And as a result, that made me the good guy in the situation instead of yet another defendant. So you may think, I don't want to say no because this is my boss, or I don't want to say no because I want to get ahead or whatever it is. None of those things that are all relevant when you find yourself in handcuffs. In the moment, how wrought were you by the request? And let's lay out what the request sure. was. When you say extortion, that's what the authorities proved. That's but what they charged there him was with. perhaps enough plausible deniability in the request. Totally. And, and yeah. in fairness, not something that most politicians don't do. So here's what happened. So as I mentioned, grants was one of the things I didn't deal with. But one day, uh, Rom calls me. Rom at the time was a congressman for Chicago. And, you know, every call with Rom is like watching Ariane Antaraj, right? Because Ariane Antaraj is his, based on his brother, right? Yeah, yeah. So every call is, you know, fuck you this, that, hangs up on you, calls you again, curses you, hangs up on you again. So I'm used to that from Rom. Yeah. But this one's like, where the fuck's my money? I don't even know what he's talking about because I don't deal with grants. And so I kind of like half piece together he's talking. I said, let me call you back. And that night I'm on the phone with Rod. And I said, hey, by the way, Rom called me. He's really upset. And I assumed that Rod would like either not know about it or would just be like, okay, I'll tell so-and-so to do it. And instead he's like, not till I get my fundraiser. And I said, whoa, what do you mean? He said, Ari Emanuel promised me a fundraiser and Rom's not getting that money until I get my fundraiser because if I give him the money first, the fundraiser will never happen. So you tell Rom I want my fundraiser. Yeah. I said, you can't do that, yeah. right? Like, you I know. understand why Blagojevich and his worldview, that's how it's it normal, works for him. Right, especially yeah. in Chicago. But the reality is like Bill de Blasio didn't get charged with it, but yeah. did that left and right in New York, right? Shouldn't Rom, knowing what I know about Rom, have anticipated this? You would think, uh, knowing what you know about Rom, like he really just a really smart politician. On the, on the flip he, side, yeah. he, Rom's moving at a million miles an hour. Right, he's got a. He was literally at the time running the DCCC, and they took back the house in two thousand six. He was a busy dude. So my guess is he said he would do it. Then he ignored it. Yeah. It wasn't getting done. Someone complained to him, and he just picked up the phone and called me. Right. Okay, so know. so there there are your bosses essentially saying extort him for for fundraising right. money. You have a number of choices in that moment, and I would also suppose one of the choices would be communicate this to Rom in a way so that everyone's happy and you haven't committed a crime. Sh- sure, but but at the end of the day, it seemed pretty clear to me you can't link a government grant with a political fundraiser, and it was clear that the best thing to do to protect both myself and Rom and also the public was to just make sure it didn't happen, yeah. right? And so I did called- you, Did you have wind that you were being listened in on at that point? No, because they, it, they weren't. Okay. Uh, in fact, the, so I called two people, and the first guy I called is the guy that gave them the probable cause to do all the wiretapping. It's a guy named John Wyma, who had been a lobbyist, uh, who's a lobbyist and was friends with Rom and with Rod. And in some ways, you know, these lobbyists have to be in the good graces of the politicians because that's, that's their whole business. And so my fear was that Rod would say to John, do this, and John wouldn't have the same- leeway that I had to say no, right? So I called John, explained it to him, and to his credit, said I got it. And and then I called Bill Quinlan, who was our general counsel and chief ethics officer, and said, you need to get your client under control. Yeah, Here's the situation. And Quinlan, to his credit, took care of it, right? Grant went out, fundraiser never happened. But when Blagojevich was arrested, there were 24 different counts, and one of them was attempted extortion of Congressman Manuel. I want to ask you, and this is what you do now, and you've been doing for years, and I guess the reason people would want to read the book or even know your name is because of all the uh, success you've achieved in the world of working with these disruptive companies and navigating their way through bureaucracies. So 
just to stipulate it is a large part of the book in your life and yet a small part of this interview, but I have a couple questions to ask. Sure. One is you have had, you have a lot of contact with Mike Bloomberg. You uh, have had contact with old school billionaires, extremely successful people, you know, Gates and Buffett. If you take that group of mm-hmm. builders and then you compare it to the new billionaires you work with you work with musk you work with uh kalanick i wonder if the old kind of uh building it billionaires are just much better and much more stable for america <laughs> than the new kind you know, of disruptive break things and then ask questions later times. Um, I, I think that the trick with all of them is knowing what you don't know right i think when you look at the ways that Zuckerberg or Travis or Elon or all these people get in trouble, it tends to be because they deviate from their core competency. It's like, for example, no one but Travis could have created Uber. No one could have broken the taxi cartel. No one could have made it. Literally, I believe literally no one on the planet other than him could have done that. But when it became to running a $72 billion bureaucracy, that really wasn't his skill set, right? Like, yes, he didn't want to give up control of the thing that he had created. But, you know, Dara, who's the current CEO, could run a big government agency. He could run a university. He's really good at running big bureaucracies, and he's doing a pretty good job of it, by the way. And when it transitioned from scrappy startup to mega company, Travis's skill set no longer applied as much, um, and it probably would have been time to step away anyway. That's a familiar story with entrepreneurs who start a business. They're not the ones to run the the business. Although Gates and, well, Buffett's an exception, but Bloomberg seems to have been an exception. Bloomberg was an exception. Uh, But look, even Gates, right? Like, what he did around computing is pretty amazing. His intentions around the Gates Foundation are amazing. I think their track record is mixed, right? They do some really good stuff around things like malaria, but it is, they've also built an insane bureaucracy over there, mm-hmm. and it's very hard to get things done, and their work in education has largely not worked out. And so it's kind of a mix. So I think the, the trick is you have all these entrepreneurs now who have these great engineering backgrounds, and they come up with these really good ideas, and they have the tenacity and kind of the megalomania to actually push it through to reality. Um, in the same way that you guys now vilify them whenever they have a misstep, you also like praise them for every conceivable thing five years ago. And so they all thought like, oh, I'm on the cover of Fast Company every month. I can do no wrong. Um, and then they get into all kinds of things that they don't really know what they're doing, right? And that's where the problem is. You know, They're neither all good or all bad. They have talents. They've all created things that are pretty remarkable. And there are advances in technology today that are life-changing in lots of different ways. Um, but the people who are good at those, I mean, look, this is a big part of my business is I have to go in and tell these people, Yes, you created this incredibly disruptive idea. Yes, you raised the money to do it. But you don't know shit about politics, right? And mm-hmm. if you don't take this stuff seriously, it's going to come back and bite you, right? And my, the whole notion from my fund, Touch Ventures, is we invest in and work with startups in regulated industries where they can be really successful, but only if they get the politics right. And our job is to spot that, deploy money, and then take on those political challenges and try to solve them. Right. And this is this is the thing that you're doing that I'm most fascinated with. A few, you know, half the states have some form of early voting, but in most of those states, you have to go to the polls. In Oregon, you could mail it in. Everything else we do in life, we do via apps on our phone, and we want voting to be secure. Enter Bradley Tusk and Tusk Ventures. What are you doing about mobile voting? So I'm trying to create a world where everyone can vote in elections on their phone. So I've reached three conclusions over the last couple of years. One is I've said this on the podcast a few times. All politicians and all of their decisions are governed solely by the political inputs and nothing else. So if you want to change the outputs, you got to change the inputs, which means who votes. Two, in all these campaigns that we ran over the years for Uber or FanDuel or Bird, people who will never vote in a primary will advocate for something politically on their phone if we make it compelling and if we make it easy. 
And the third leg of the stool or the triangle, whatever that cliche is, is um, blockchain, right? Blockchain right now is far and away the safest way to transmit data from point A to point B. People often confuse Bitcoin and blockchain. Right. Cryptocurrency, and I, I am an investor in, in, in some of the exchanges and I do believe in it, but it is an ideological conceit that you can reject or accept. And we can have a whole conversation right. about that. If, if there was a way to say, what's a world where we can make voting radically easier and also a lot safer, you should want to pursue that, right? The problem is, most people in power don't want to pursue it because they don't want to make it easier to lose power. So I have a foundation called Tussie Montgomery Philanthropies. It's you know, luckily I've made all this money from Uber and have tried to put it to good use. Um, and the th- one of the things we're trying to create is blockchain-based voting. So we're working with states and cities and saying, give it a try and we'll help you do it. So the state of West Virginia was the first to do it. They did it in their primary. They're doing it again right now in their general. It's for deployed military because the secretary of state there had been in the military and was frustrated that, you know, by the time these guys mail in their ballot from Kandahar, like the election has yeah. been decided for And months. he's someone you have a personal connection. You know, to. I, uh, one of my first employee ever is going to Shelly Capital. Her mom, also named Shelly Capital, is a U.S. senator from West Virginia. Yeah. They connected me to them. It seems like that's an area where demonstrating effectiveness has very little correlation to adopting it as a policy. There's tons There's yeah, tons sure. of evidence that having a paper trail for a Diebold ballot is good, and tons of states don't do it. Right. Um, here's the thing, though. Our I mean, kids- to, 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 The bottom yeah. line for me is that only Democratic-controlled states are going to do it, and even most of them, because it's not just Democrat, it's those are specific Democrats who were elected because they benefited from the old system. Even those states are going to be very opposed. And you can have three or four states where it worked, and everyone's going to lie about it and not want to accept it no matter what. totally possible, with the one exception, which is my kids, your kids can't imagine a world where something as fundamental as voting, picking our leaders, wouldn't be able to be done that way in a secure fashion. And so I think even if I do nothing in 25 years, this is going to be the case anyway, right? Because technology, once they let the genie out of the bottle with technology, it's very hard to put it back right. in. So I kind of think the opposite of you, which is if I show that it could work, I don't want to be naive. I get that everyone's going to oppose me for lots of different reasons, but I think a younger generation is going to demand that it happens anyway. And if we can, like right now, all the criticism we're getting is not you know, oh, we don't want people to vote, it's oh, it's not safe, right? Because they can't right. say, like, I want fewer voters in my election, right? But if, if we can eventually prove on a consistent basis that it is safe, I think then there's at least a real argument to do it. And if I were you, I think it's worth the chance that it doesn't work. If there's a 3% chance yeah, that why, this works. Look, I am very lucky that I live at this weird intersection of tech and politics and kind of have a fund in a business that no one else happens to do what I do. And because I took my fee in Uber in equity, I made a lot more money than I ever expected to have. And so if I'm in a position to try to move this thing forward and I have yeah. the resources to do it and the platform to do it, like why wouldn't I? And the big thing this changes, people should know, is not that if you think, well, what's turnout in the presidential election? It's like, you know, 60% and they right. do polling. People who don't vote break pretty much evenly between the parties. Yeah. They're mostly very underinformed. That d- that doesn't seem to be breathing fresh life into the winds of democracy to get these 40% of uninformed voters. The huge difference is the primary. Yeah, sure. It turns primaries into in the instead of these niche party controlled enterprises, it turns them into real yeah, democracy. I mean, you're a Republican congressman from Florida. Turnout in your primary is 12% because your district is gerrymandered. The primary is the general election. You probably know that people walking around with an AK-47 in your district is not a great idea, mm-hmm. but if half that 12% are NRA members, you're never voting for an assault weapons ban. 
If all of a sudden now primary can be conducted on the phone and turnout goes from 12% to 60%, the NRA's vote share goes from 50% down to 10%, and then all of a sudden you're not doing anything but voting for assault weapons ban because the politics have shifted. So if you believe that politicians will only do what's in their political interest every single time, and I believe that very strongly with a lot of evidence to, to say why, um, you've got to change the inputs, and so you're never going to pass these issues you know, like guns or immigration or climate or healthcare, both on the left and the right. Like, I think the teachers' unions also have a disproportionate amount of control um, because they're able to manipulate really low turnout elections. So it, it's true on both sides of the of the spectrum, but you're never going to stop having a polarized, broken democracy until you have a lot more turnout. Bradley Tusk is the author of The Fixer, My Adventures, Saving Startups from Death by Politics. Thanks for coming by. Thanks for having me. And now the spiel. On October 7th, I noticed something that was interesting in an NFL game. The Arizona Cardinals beat the San Francisco 49ers by 10 points, but the Cardinals had only 10 first downs in that game. The 49ers had 33. 10 is really low if you don't follow football. It was, in fact, the lowest number by any team that won a game that year. Turnovers. Turnovers were key. So I took a screenshot on my phone and I circled that number 10 and I sent it out. Hey, isn't this interesting? By the way, if you were wondering on the edit function, I use the red marker, the kind of middle marker in thickness. I like that for circling things on my phone. And when I sent this out, no one much cared, such as the ability of the 49ers and the Arizona Cardinals to capture the public's imagination. But you know what? No one responded with. No one responded with thoughts like this. You idiot. Why don't you learn something about football? Hey, moron, first downs aren't the same as points. This is not how the game is played. You are the biggest fool who ever pretended to know about football. Okay, keep that in mind, that non-reaction, when I tell you this story. It was exactly a month later. The date on the tweet I'm going to talk about, November 7th. It was a little after midnight, election night, and I was looking at some numbers, and I took a screenshot of these numbers, and I again circled them in the thick but not thickest red marker on the edit function of my phone. What the numbers were, were was the, the website HuffPo was running a tally of the national vote for Senate. So I circled them, and at the time I think it showed there were 36 million Democrats and 29 million Republicans. And this was at a time when it was clear the Democrats were going to lose seats in the Senate. The Democrats had no hope of taking the Senate. And I also happen to know that in the last election, the Democrats got over 10 million more votes than the Republicans. So I saw that we we're going to have a Senate with a Republican advantage of by then at that time, I thought it would be seven. It looks like it's going to be eight seats, even though many million more voters have over the last three years voted for the Democrats who are running for Senate over the Republicans this is why I added democracy is a funny thing. Thought it was an okay tweet, but my fourth best of the night. 19,000 retweets later, I learned some things. Like this, it's official, you're an idiot, Joseph Ellis. Or this, dude, are you really that stupid? Exactly what state did you receive your basic education in? Or Carlos, who writes, it's oblivious, civics was not your best study. Obliviously. Are you seriously moronic enough not to understand these vote totals? Bad math is a funny thing, or you're just a liar. I could read you hundreds more, thousands actually. Now, I didn't get what the kids call ratioed, because 1.9 thousand people responded with a comment, but 40,000 people liked the tweet. 
I do have to say, some of those who liked the tweet might have liked it for the wrong reasons. Because a lot of people wrote the word gerrymandering. Damn gerrymandering. Look, how the Senate goes has nothing to do with gerrymandering. You can't gerrymander a state. The word is malapportionment. And I was noting that the popular vote reflects that the desires of more people in America are to put Democrats in the Senate. And yet the Senate is comprised of many more Republicans. I understand. I really do understand civics. I understand the rules, just like I understand that first downs aren't touchdowns. Back then, you didn't question my understanding. But now it's like I don't understand how the Senate works. Okay, I got it. A lot of people a lot of commenters who were keen to tell me that I was wrong and were really intent on telling me how wrong I was. Turns out they were wrong in why I got it wrong. Mark Willard asks, are you seriously moronic enough not to understand these vote totals? These are vote totals of the elections held yesterday, the large majority of which were Democratic incumbents. Tom Evans writes, astonishing that 90% of the respondents to this tweet are missing the fundamental math problems here. Dems won over two-thirds of Senate races yesterday because they were defending more seats this cycle. And Dax Hustling writes, most of the seats up for re-election were Democratic seats, so no shit the Democratic vote was way higher. Actually, yes shit. I'll give you a couple counterpoints. Most of the seats up in the House of Representatives were Republican, weren't they? You remember that. It was Tuesday. And more of them lost, so Dems got more votes because the people who came out to vote voted for more Democrats. In 2016, there were 24 Republican seats up and 10 Democratic seats. So according to Dax Huslig, no shit Republicans would get more. Turns out Democrats got 11 million more votes than Republicans, even though Republicans were defending seats they held. I don't know why it would be that defending seats that people would fall into this trap, maybe because they were thinking if Democrats controlled the seats, it's at least one data point to show that these were seats that Democrats wanted to vote for. But it's just it's as often untrue as it is true. Or I should say my basic point about let us see what the people would like in their Senate is at least an interesting thing to think about. In schooling me on civics, a lot of people like to make the point, hey, dummy, we're not a democracy. We're a republic. Or obviously you're dumb and don't even know how the system works. We are not a democracy and not a socialist country. So move out and get over it. Okay. Here's what republic means. Republic means we use representatives. We could use them democratically. We could use them to define one person as one vote. We could use them proportionally. This is what Alexander Hamilton wanted. He wanted a Senate. He wanted the Senate to be smaller than the House and have longer terms than the House. And he had to be older to get elected. He wanted the Senate to sort of be more important, but he never wanted the Senate to be proportional. We understand there was a Connecticut compromise. That's how it got passed. But republic Explaining that we're a republic, not a democracy, does not get to the idea that the Senate is an undemocratic institution. And yes, I know, it wasn't supposed to be, which gets to the next slew of points. Idiot, this would lead to tyranny of the majority. If you allowed direct vote, you'd have tyranny of the majority. Here's the thing about tyranny of the majority. It's something to watch out for. But the way people were using it is, if we allowed the majority to have majority rule, it would be necessarily tyrannical. Tyranny of the majority is a phrase like paralysis by analysis or unchecked power. I mean, that's the bad kind of power. 
and the bad kind of analysis, but it doesn't necessarily lead to the idea that all analysis is bad or all power is bad or all majority rule is bad. Given the choice between majority rule and minority rule, I'd much rather go by majority rule, at least most of the time. Some people said, you know, the reason it was set up, we understand the Connecticut Compromise. It's not only there for a reason and not only there by rule, it's the right rule. Quote, your republic is set up like this to avoid giving the population centers an unfair numerical advantage over the other states. I don't think it would be unfair, but it is. We know this. I'm not arguing that. I also know that field goals are worth three points and touchdowns are worth six with a chance for a conversion. And by the way, if you want to imagine a situation where a Senate was elected proportionally, every state in the country... Even Nebraska, unicameral legislature, has entirely proportional representation. In fact, it's unconstitutional to do it otherwise, but for one place, the U.S. Senate. And I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong, but here's why it's put in. It's an anti-majoritarian check. We have checks and balances in our system, and there are some things put in place to be anti-majoritarian. The entire Bill of Rights is such a place. Electorally, we have the Senate, which is ruled by states, not people. We have the Electoral College, which, which makes sure people don't get a direct say in the election of the president. We also have the allowance that states draw congressional boundaries, which are at least a check on the governing power of the federal government. It was 230 years ago we thought of these rules. We tried. You know, Hamilton was against some of them. But think about all those things I listed. Not only were they checks on majoritarian rule. They've all come to pass. So now what we have in America is all the tripwires having been tripped, all of them. It's not a safeguard on majoritarian rule. It's an all but guarantee of minority rule by following the rules. It's no one's fault. The founders tried, but that is where we are. I don't know if it's tyranny of the minority, but it's getting pretty trying. And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader, who failed to account for the role of Wyoming's vote being counted only once when everyone knows Wyomingites are just bigger and better than other people, like nutmeggers. TJ Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcast, Better Hair Than Blagojevich. The gist. Mobile phone voting would be great. But first, can we get StubHub to understand that when I enter a discount code, they shouldn't cancel out my whole order? First that. Umpru Depru Dupru, and thanks for listening.